My name's Daniel. I've hobbled, I'm hobbled a little bit. I got a gimpy ankle, so you'll have to bear with me a little bit. Uh, you guys been enjoying camp? It's been good so far? How many churches are, do we have represented here? Four? Maranatha is here. Let me hear from Maranatha. Awesome. That's my home church. Uh, I grew up in that church. My dad is the pastor of that church. And uh, how many Vista people do we have? Awesome. All right. What, what are the other churches? San Juan. San Juan. Let me hear San Juan. And then any other churches? What did I, what did I hear? Mexico? <laughs> what? Metro. Let's hear it from Metro. That's cool. Modesto. I missed one. Modesto. Come on, Modesto. Everybody give it some love to Modesto. <laughs> Is that everybody? <laughs> okay, all the rest of you guys. Let's just, I'm no, just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's so great to be here. Um, if you do have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Matthew chapter 4. Um, that's where we're going to be hanging out tonight. It's it's a little weird for me to be back here. I was a youth pastor um, for a lot of years. In fact, Aaron and I figured it out that when I was youth pastoring, he was a student coming through these camps. And, and so I spent a lot of time and a lot of summers up here with students, and it never ceases to amaze me just how faithful God is. There's something about coming to camp where... You get away from all your distractions, and maybe you don't have good cell service here, and so God's able to reach down and get a hold of you in ways that He can't otherwise do because the signal just gets messed up with all of the distractions and all the stuff we've got going on in our lives. And Would you agree with me? You get up at camp, and, and it's like the wavelengths are clear, and God just seems to work in powerful ways. I was hearing, I was talking with some friends before uh, the session tonight, and they were telling me just how awesome all of the sessions have been. I know last night was a powerful session, and, and a lot of you experienced the power of the Holy Spirit coming into your heart. And I've been praying for you guys, and um, just for tonight's session, that it would be a continuation of what God wants to do um, in, and, in and through you guys. Um, it's, it's just crazy. Everywhere I look at this camp, I'm seeing reminders of past experiences and I've sat in those seats, and it seems like some of my sweetest memories of what worship is and time spent with God in communion and worship have been in this very room. I was hanging out by the pool for a minute and spent so much time in that pool baptizing kids, and that's amazing. You know, the lake you've got down there, I've got this great memory years ago. Um, I don't know if they've changed the rules, but when I was coming here, you could, it didn't matter, there weren't like any weight ratios for how much weight you could blob someone with, and so... It was my, the only reason I let this happen is because she was my cousin. She must have weighed like 60 pounds. And so we got like me and three other big guys. And I swear we set some records that camp. And she's probably still up somewhere in the atmosphere. But just, just good memories, you know. <laughs> she, she did eventually come down. But um, I want to talk to you guys from Matthew chapter 4 and from this subject, I want to talk about following Jesus, following Jesus. And as I thought through that topic and that subject, um, it got me thinking about social media in particular. It got me thinking about Twitter. How many of you guys are on Twitter? Okay, a lot of hands going up. Um, 
Well, you, you guys, even if you're not on Twitter, you get the idea, the concepts. Just social media platform that allows you to communicate with people, right? And if there's a celebrity you like or a friend and you want to keep tabs on them and know what they're doing in their life, you can go to their page and you can click the follow button, right? And, and then every time they tweet something or take a picture, you can send it out and it'll show up in your feed. Anybody know who has the most Twitter followers? Ellen, close. Kim, no. Katy Perry. Katy Perry. 90 million followers. Second place, where are my believers at? Come on. All right. And then rounding out the top three, another singer, Swifties. She has 74 million followers, so. So that's Twitter. <laughs> it got me curious. I was, for those who are curious, there's a lot of bugs up here. Um, Jesus has his own Twitter account. Actually, he has hundreds of them. If you go to the, the, the search site and you look up the name Jesus, you'll find hundreds and hundreds of Twitterers or tweeters tweeting in Jesus' name. And, and a lot of them are trying to poke fun. Some of them are downright blasphemous. And then there's those people that are genuine and sincere and they send out verses and encouragements. There's one Jesus on Twitter that has 34,000 followers, so good for him. But, but that's kind of the idea of Twitter. You accumulate followers, right? And, and I don't know if Jesus, if he were here in physical form today, I don't know if he would have a Twitter account or not. But here's what we do know about Jesus. He was very interested in getting people to follow him, right? So as you read through the Gospels, those four books that start the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give us four accounts of the life of Jesus, um, over and over and over again in the Gospels, you'll find Jesus issuing this invitation to people to come and follow Him. What's interesting is, as you contrast and compare that with how many times He asked people to believe in Him, there's five instances of that in the Gospels. But there's four times as many instances. There's 20 instances where Jesus invited people to follow Him. And, and what's really crazy about that is, is as you get into it, and you look at the kinds of people that Jesus issued this invitation to. It spans the spectrum. He asked all kinds of people. It didn't matter if you were young or old or rich or poor. It didn't matter if you were a fisherman or a tax collector or a prostitute or a, a social elite or a social outcast. It didn't matter if you were a skeptic or a spiritual seeker. It didn't matter if you were a sinner. It didn't matter to him if you were anything. He gave that invitation to all kinds of people. It seems like when it came to the kinds of people that Jesus was interested in attracting as would-be followers, he was an equal opportunity employer. There was nobody that was outside the reach of that net that he was trying to cast. He didn't put parameters or conditions upon that request, that invitation. He just looked at people, all kinds of people, and said, follow me. Now, as we, as we think about our own lives, and I look at a crowd like this, I'm guessing that, you know, most of us in here tonight would identify as Christ followers, right? I mean, you're at a Christian camp, and maybe you're here and you're, like, not totally bought in, you're not sold out on the idea of following Christ, but you're at least interested, but the majority of us here tonight are probably in that camp that would say, yeah, I'm a Christ follower. And basically what I mean by that is, at some point in your life, 
maybe it was at this youth camp or last year's youth camp. Maybe it was um, at a church service or an Easter service. At some point in your life, some guy got up on a stage or maybe it was a friend and, and he, he shared the gospel with you and shared with you about God's love for you. Gosh, that's stupid than that. And the story resonated with you, and it clicked, and you said, I, I don't get it. I still have a lot of questions. I have some doubts, but, but I'm in. Whatever that picture looks like, whatever that means, I want to be a Christian. I want to follow Jesus, and you have this moment. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who says, I want to follow Jesus. A Christian is a Christ follower. Those two terms are synonymous. And yet, while I would guess and venture that most of us in here probably would say, yeah, if I ask, I'm a, I'm a Christ follower, I bet there's still a lot of confusion out there about what that really means, what that really entails for our lives. Um, I mean, is following Jesus like following somebody on Twitter? To follow someone on Twitter doesn't require much, does it? You just click a button and you're following them. It doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't require anything. And even if you never read a single tweet from that person, you're still considered one of their followers. And I think there's a lot of Christians out there that kind of carry that same mentality into their spiritual walk. And, and maybe you prayed a prayer or you joined a church or you got baptized and so click, you click the follow button and from that point on you're considered a Christ follower, but you don't really change in any way, and there's no real commitment, and there's no real passion or devotion. It doesn't, you just kind of sit around and wait for messages to be delivered into your inbox or onto your feed, and, and that's kind of your picture of what it means to follow Jesus. And what I want to do tonight with the few minutes that I have with you is I just want to challenge that notion, that picture of what we've kind of reduced following Christ to be, and I want to do that by going back to Jesus in the Gospels and looking at his original design and what he had in mind when he first issued that invitation to four fishermen. So that brings us to our text. If you have your Bible, I hope you're already there. Matthew chapter 4, pick up with me in verse 18. It says this, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said, come and follow me, and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So this is the first story, the account of the first disciples. And they leave everything and they follow Jesus. And I think it's an important study for us to consider. Because when I think about what it means to follow Jesus, I think that a lot of people that claim to be Christ followers maybe fit better in a different category. They might fit better under the category of Christ admirers. Or fans, right? Jesus, he always had a lot of fans, but he had few followers. He had a lot of people who admired him, but only from a distance. They were only willing to go so far. Time Magazine, a while back, ran a cover story on the most admired people in history and topping the list, as is a surprise to no one probably, was Jesus Christ. 
He was followed by Napoleon Bonaparte and Shakespeare and Muhammad and Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. And, and while I'm sure that Jesus was flattered to make the list, and even top the list of most admired people in history, at the end of the day, that's not what he was after. That's not what he was interested in. When you look at this story, when you look at the Gospels, Jesus never told people to respect me or admire me or even like me. What Jesus said over and over and over again is, follow me, follow me. That's what Jesus is into. He's, he's wanting us to follow him. Now, there's a lot of differences between someone who admires Jesus from a distance and someone who follows him with their life. Admirers applaud. Followers surrender their life. Admirers are impressed Followers are devoted, and Jesus isn't looking for fans. He has enough of those. He's not looking for you to click a button on Twitter and follow him that way. He's looking for followers, people who are willing to say, like these guys were, Jesus, I'll go with you anywhere. I'm down for the adventure of following you in and through this life. So that's what this story is all about. This story represents the, the beginnings, the first chapter in Jesus' public ministry. It's kind of it's interesting as you, you think about the story of Jesus, you, you have a lot of commotion and a lot of attention paid to him as, in, at his birth, right? And so you have the, the account of the angels filling the heavens and singing, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. You have the story of the shepherds showing up and, and you have, the, of course, the wise men bringing the gifts to little baby Jesus. But then Jesus kind of disappears off the public scene. He slips into obscurity. And for the next 30 years of his life, he, he lives in relative obscurity, the lost years. There's one or two stories scattered throughout the Gospels that explain that time. But for the most part, it was Jesus working as a carpenter in his father's shop there in Nazareth. But now he's 30 years old and he's getting ready to, to start his public ministry. And, and so he begins by selecting 12 men to be with him. These men would partner with him. We just watched a, a video on what it means to partner with God. And the theme of this, this camp is with the king. And so these were 12 guys that literally, physically, and personally got to follow Jesus in life. They spent nearly every waking moment with Jesus over a three and a half year period. At the end of that time, Jesus is ripped from them and he's crucified on a Roman cross, horrifically dying a death for crimes he never committed between two thieves. They lay him in a tomb and three days later he rises from the dead and he ascends back up into heaven. But before he goes into heaven, he gathers those guys who had been with him for that period of time and he commissions them with this calling, this responsibility of carrying... Did you get that? <laughs> Carrying on the mission that he began. Taking his message and his mission with them to the ends of the earth. So this is Jesus' plan. This is, he has no backup plan. He has no plan B. The whole success of Jesus' enterprise rests on the shoulders of the men that he had chosen to partner with for three and a half years in life and in ministry, and they did it. Now, now, who would Jesus choose for a mission like that? The, the, the whole rest of the history of the church is contingent upon the ability of these men to carry on the mission and the message of Jesus that he launched during that period. 
So who would Jesus choose? I think it's, I think it's telling. He doesn't cherry-pick his disciples from the distinguished rabbinical schools of the day. He doesn't select the, the most elite members of, of society. He doesn't go to the courts of Rome or the halls of Egypt or even the temple courts of Jerusalem. But the heading given to this passage of Scripture in my Bible says that Jesus chooses four fishermen to be his disciples. That's who Jesus chooses. And I hope tonight that that encourages someone. That as Jesus continues to look for individuals to partner with to the end that he might carry on and fulfill his plan, his purpose, his mission on this earth, that, that it's not ability, but it's availability that he's looking for. Somebody say amen. amen. That gives hope to people like you and to people like me. When Jesus chooses men to change the world, he doesn't go to the upper crust, but he just chooses normal, everyday, ordinary, salt-of-the-earth men and women. And that's who Jesus continues to use even to this day. And at the very least, if this story teaches us nothing else, I think it serves as a wonderful reminder to all of us that at the end of the day, what God is looking for, what He's interested in, the types of people that He chooses to use are people who are willing and available. And that's why I think Jesus chose these guys. But we've got a few more minutes, so let's dig into this story. I don't know if you're familiar with this passage of Scripture. I've read through it hundreds of times, and it's one of those stories that's easy to just kind of read through. Jesus walks up, he says, follow me, and they follow him, and on you go with your Bible reading plan. But let's, let's stop and consider what went down. I mean, the way that this story plays out in some of those Bible movies that you've seen is a little dramatic, right? Jesus walks up to these fishermen in a white bathrobe a light blue Miss America sash draped over his shoulders. He's got maybe a lamb wrapped around him. And he's got this Scandinavian blonde hair that's perfectly coiffed and those piercing blue eyes. And then a shaft of light like breaks through the clouds. And, and he says in a British accent, like using Shakespearean English, like, follow me. And, and they follow him. And you're like, yeah, that makes sense. But the problem with that is, is we don't read any of that in this book. I mean... All Matthew says is that Jesus walks up to four fishermen, says, follow me, and they follow him. It, as far as speeches go, if you're, getting, if you're trying to get people to, 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 to set aside their career, to leave their loved ones and family members and friends, and to follow you into a life of risk, I don't know that this qualifies as a fantastic speech. It consists of just two words. And maybe this is where it helps to know a little bit of the, the context, the cultural background. And so let's just take a minute to, to dive into that. Um, Israel, in the first century, when Jesus lived, it was, it was a highly religious society. And, and so when Jesus walks up to these men, he's not just a guy, he's a rabbi. A rabbi with a reputation. And, and in a highly religious setting, like Israel was back then, he issues an invitation that would have been familiar to them. The two words, follow me, were words that any young Jewish man would long to hear a rabbi say to them. It was an invitation into a role, a relationship of discipleship. And so in that culture and at that time, rabbis were the most revered, respected, and distinguished members of society. Um, you know, the, the same way like kids used to trade baseball cards. They probably had cards of different rabbis. These were like the celebrities and the heroes 
of the day. And so their whole educational system was wrapped around this idea of weeding out the kids who weren't good enough to teach the Bible and, and to kind of push forward those kids who were the best of the best. And so starting at the age of six, all the kids would be sent to the local synagogue where the rabbi would begin teaching them the scripture. Now by the time these kids were 10, their formal training would be completed. And a lot of these kids, by the time they were 10, had memorized the first five books of the Bible. You can't even name the first five books of the Bible. They had them memorized. These kids were not messing around, right? And, and so by that point, though, most of the kids in the school would have been deemed unworthy. They were smart, but not smart enough. There was something that kind of checked that they didn't pass their tests. And so most kids would be sent home. And they would learn a trade, they would apprentice, usually under their dad or, or, or their family business, and, and they would learn their trade and carry on the family business, and that would be the end of it. But those kids who excelled and were the top 1%, these kids would go on to a secondary school, it was called Bet Talmud, and their training and their education would continue, and, and they would really study the scripture. So they would study not only the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but they would go on and they would study all the law and the prophets and the major and minor prophets and the Psalms and the Proverbs and all the rest. And this schooling would last four years. So the, by the time they're 14, these kids had memorized the entire Old Testament. A lot of them. It wasn't uncommon at all which is just crazy to me. Um, and, and, and even in the, along the way, in that process, most of them would be sent home. So now you're left with just the best of the best. These are the Navy SEAL Christians. These are the Harvard kids, the Yale kids. Golly, the stupid net. So these are the best of the best. They're all that's left, the, the top 1%. And, and these kids would then, having completed their education, they would then approach a rabbi and they would say to them, I want to be your Talmudim. I want to be one of your disciples. I want, I want you to train me and teach me so that I can be a rabbi like you. And the rabbi would begin to quiz the potential disciple. He would say to them, okay, well, it's obvious you know the scriptures. Why don't we do it like this? Tell me the four references to Deuteronomy that show up in the book of Habakkuk. And tell me them in order. And they'd have to do it. No, no, no open book tests. they just have to know the word like that. Or they might say, how many times does the name of the Lord appear in the 23rd chapter of Leviticus? There's 37 people. Come on. This is like Bible camp. So it's, and they would ask them question after question and just grill them and grill them. And then they might say to them at the end, yeah, you have what it takes. Come and take my yoke upon you. A yoke was a teaching. So take my yoke upon you and learn from me and become my disciple. Follow me. And that would lead them into a life of following the rabbi. And the goal of any rabbi was to reproduce themselves in their students. And so even to this day in Israel, a form of this kind of discipleship or apprenticeship exists. And it's not uncommon for a rabbi to walk into the bathroom and then their students, their disciples would follow them into the bathroom. Because when your rabbi goes to the bathroom, you go to the bathroom. When your rabbi eats, you eat. When your rabbi sleeps, you sleep. When your rabbi talks, you talk. And, and so it's all about reproducing yourself in your disciples. And there was a saying that developed over time. It was, it was kind of a blessing that they would, they would see these disciples following the rabbi and they would say to them, oh, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. 
The idea being that as your rabbi walks through the dusty streets of Israel and kicks up dust from their shoes, that it would get all over you because you're following so closely. And that was the goal of every kid in Jewish society. Now, there was the the chance that even if you made it this far, you wouldn't be selected. And the rabbi might say to you, it's obvious that you know the scriptures, but you don't have what it takes to be one of my disciples. And so go home, learn a trade, make babies, and then pray that they have what it takes and they'll someday grow up to be rabbis. Which is, in all likelihood, what happened to our four friends who get called to follow Jesus in this story. They didn't have what it took. They They got kicked out of the curriculum at some point. And yet in this story, Jesus walks up to these guys who were rejected by the other rabbis. And he says to them, follow me. Here's what's crazy about that. No rabbi would ever issue this invitation to a disciple. They wouldn't take a risk like that. They wouldn't risk rejection like that, right? Here Jesus puts the ball in the disciples' court, and he says, you follow me, and it's up to them. And so it would be humiliating for a rabbi to be rejected by some pupil, some disciple, and yet that's exactly what Jesus does. And and I hope in this moment you're beginning to sense the, 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 the weight of this question because it's not just a question that Jesus gave to these four guys, but it's a question that lingers in the air. It's a question that Jesus gives to all of us. Will you follow me? Will you be my disciple? Now before you say yes and amen and raise your hands and sign me up, perhaps we should talk a little bit at first about what that really entails and what that really means. It's time for the DTR, right? Those of you who have been involved in a romantic relationship, there comes a point at which you have to define the relationship. That's what I mean by DTR. And, and usually, you know, it's the girl that sits the guy down and you've been going out and you've been having fun and you've been doing your thing. And, and, and then at some point the girl will say, so what is your plans and where is this all going? And it's the, the, the conversation that every young man dreads and fears and runs from. But we need to define The relationship, what's at stake, where is this headed? And I feel like maybe in this moment, Jesus is sitting us down and he's saying, let's let's define the relationship. What does it really mean to follow me before you say yes? I have just a few thoughts and then we'll end. Number one, when Jesus says, follow me, that invitation is radically relational. Jesus isn't interested in calling you to follow the rules. Jesus is calling you to follow him. Those are two different things. Religion puts all the emphasis on follow the rules. And and a lot of times we like that because we can grade ourselves against the curve and we can measure ourselves against others and we can go down the list and we can check the boxes and we can feel pretty good about ourselves, especially when we measure ourselves against that schmuck over there who isn't doing anything. And religion puts all the emphasis on following the rules, but Jesus puts all the emphasis on following him. When you look at the way that that Jesus and God structured this whole thing, God could have just wrote a rule book and threw it down to earth and said, good luck, follow that and you get in. But that's not the way that God did it. God sent his son in the likeness 
of human flesh. And Jesus walked this earth for 33 and a half years. He was tempted in every way, just like we are, the Bible says, yet he never sinned. He knows what it's like to hurt. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to feel lonely. He knows what it feels like to, to walk this life. And he says to us, follow me. It's an invitation into a dynamic, personal relationship, not just following a bunch of rules. I think one of the reasons that a lot of people, maybe young people in particular, get turned off by, by Christianity is because they put too much emphasis on following the rules and they lose sight of following Jesus. So when Jesus says, follow me, he's inviting you into a relationship. You, you could just as easily translate those words, follow with me. Jesus is saying, let's take a walk. Now, when I look at the different metaphors and pictures that the Bible used to describe what it means and what it looks like to enter into a relationship with God, I think this is one of my favorites because it's just so simple. You know what? I, I'm, one of the things that my wife and I love to do is we've got this lake not too far from our house and in, in summer, around the evenings, we'll take walks around the lake and we'll just connect and we'll download with each other and we'll just break down our days and we'll complain about our kids and we'll, we'll talk about the things that are bugging us and the things that are bringing us joy and we'll check in with each other, how are we doing? And it's just one of the things we do to grow our relationship and our love. And, and I think that's so cool because Jesus says, I want you to walk with me through this life. And over and over again in the scriptures, this picture pops up. You, you, you read about Abraham walking with God. You read about Noah walking with God. My favorite, you read about a guy named Enoch. There's just like two verses in the whole Bible about this guy. He shows up out of the blue in Genesis chapter 5, and the Bible says this. This is his whole story. Enoch faithfully walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. And I don't fully understand what that means, but at the very least, it gives us a picture of this guy named Enoch waking up and day after day, year after year, decade after decade, he just, he just walks with God. He does life with God. He converses with God. He prays to God. He hears from God. And then one day, he's been walking with God for so long. He's been doing it so faithfully. God turns to his friend Enoch. He just says, hey man, I think we're closer to my house than we are yours. Why don't you just come home with me? And the Bible says, Enoch was no more for God took him. I just love that picture. Walking with Jesus is relational. Secondly, I think the invitation to follow Jesus requires total commitment. We get a picture of that in our text, don't we? If you jump down to verse 20, it says, they left their nets and their boats, and they followed Jesus. 22, verse 22 says something similar. It says, they left their boat, they left their father, and they followed Jesus. For these guys, following Jesus meant physically and literally walking away from everything that they knew, everyone that they loved, their career, their nest egg, their 401k. It meant leaving their, everything behind and just following Jesus into this great unknown. And, and, and so what does that mean for us? We talk about, I surrender all, or I want to lay my life down, and that's great, but it's still kind of ambiguity, amb ambiguous. So what does it mean? to totally surrender. At the very least, I think it means this. For you and I today, practically, it means that there's no area of our lives that's off limits to Jesus. You know what I'm saying? 
Like there's no area where we say, God, you can have control of all of this, but, but this over here, that still belongs to me. And so, God, I'll give you control of all this, but I'm going to hold on to this. And, and I'm going to follow you here, but I'm not going to follow you over here. And we like to do things like that. We like to follow Jesus to a degree, right? We like to follow him as long as it's convenient for us, as long as it doesn't infringe upon what we want to do with our lives, as long as it doesn't, as long as it makes us happy. It's like we love the idea of forgiveness. We aren't crazy about the idea of repentance. We, have, we love salvation. We want to sing about salvation. We don't really like the idea of surrender. We love heaven, but we still want to be able to live like hell, right? There's, in the 60s, Frank Sinatra used to sing, I did it my way. And uh, I think there's still some of that in us, all of us, right? But we want to do it our way. We want to be the boss. We want to have the final say. For a long time in my relationship with Jesus, I, I feel like, I signed up and said, yeah, I want to follow you, Jesus. But in reality, as you look at it from an outsider's perspective, I had invited Jesus to follow me. <laughs> right? Like, I was excited about doing whatever he wanted as long as what he wanted lined up with what I wanted. And I think there's some of that in all of us. Where we say, Jesus, I'll follow you until, or I'll follow you as long as. And that's not what Jesus is interested in. He's interested in total and utter abandonment. And I guess that confronts us with this reality. At the end, when you think about following Jesus, it's ultimately going to cost you something. It may cost you a relationship when you say, no, I'm not going to sleep with you, or, or I'm not going to do that, or I'm not going to go there. It may cost you a job promotion in the future. It may cost you some friendships. It, may, it, it will cost you in some ways. You're like, I'm not going to go to the parties. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to smoke that. I'm not going to... And you have to say no to some things. It costs you in some ways. And we need to be honest about that. But whatever you give up to follow Jesus, get ready to say amen, all y'all. Whatever you give up to follow Jesus pales in comparison to what you'll gain. Amen. amen. And that was super weak, so we'll try it again. Whatever you give up to follow Jesus pales in comparison to what you'll gain. Amen. amen. Church. <laughs> I'm going to take that back with me to Colorado. Um, if you could go back and interview these guys, Peter, John, and James, if you could go back and interview them and, and, and you were to ask them, tell me about what you gave up to follow Jesus. You know what they would do? They would sit there and <laughs> they would laugh in your face. They would say, you want me to talk about what I gave up? I didn't give up anything to follow Jesus. Let's talk about what I gained. Man, I got to see miracles. I got to see the lame walk. I got to see the deaf hear. I got to see the blind see. I saw lepers cleanse right in front of my eyes. I got to see Jesus raise the dead. I got to see miracles. I got to take part in an adventure. Peter would look at you and say, I got to walk on water, bruh. They got to live a story that was bigger than them. They got to experience the miraculous and live this adventure and feel like they were part of a story that began before time and stretches on into eternity. They got to see Jesus in flesh. 
and experience that. They would say, I didn't give up anything. And in the truest sense of the word, anyone who's signed up to follow Jesus never regrets it as they look back. There's nobody in heaven right, that, right now that is saying, you know what? I don't know. Probably could have not followed Jesus. Might have turned out better. That's not happening. In fact, when you look at the Gospels, there's only one story of a guy who left the presence of Jesus in a worse state than when he came into the presence of Jesus. One story. We don't know the guy's name. We simply refer to him as the rich young ruler. And in that story, I'm guessing most of you have heard it. This guy comes to Jesus. He's got it all. He's got wealth. He's got youth. He's got good looks. I'm sure he's got a pretty looking girl under his arm. And he's, he's, got the, he's got it all. And yet there's still that piece of the puzzle that's missing. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, what is, what's the deal? What am I missing? What do I still lack? Because there's like this void in my heart and my soul. And, and maybe it's religion and you seem to have it together. So what's the deal? What's the secret to your success and your contentment in life? And Jesus has this conversation with the guy. And at the end of the conversation, he turns to him and he says the same thing to him that he said to these guys. He says, you know what? Just, just leave all that stuff and come and follow me. And here's what the Bible says. It says he turned around and he walked away very sad because he had a great many possessions. And we talk a lot about the cost of following Jesus, but maybe it's time that we spend a minute or two talking about the cost of not following Jesus. When you give up following Jesus, you're giving up peace in your heart and a clean conscience and the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit and the, the future that is forever and secured in heaven. And there's so much that we gain from following Jesus. And yeah, there's a cost to be paid. In fact, the cost is radically high. The only thing that's Higher in cost than following Jesus is the cost of not following Jesus. So it requires total surrender. Number three, I think the invitation to follow Jesus is dynamic. I love what the scripture says that we read. It says, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you. Follow me and I will make you into fishers of men. I'll take who you are, I'll take what you do, and I'll use it for my glory and for others' good. And there's a sense in which every person who follows Jesus is being made into something that looks more like Jesus. And Jesus doesn't leave us as we are. He, he changes us, he molds us, he shapes us, he uses the Holy Spirit, he uses circumstances, he uses relationships, he uses his word to transform us into the image of him. He takes his disciples and reproduces himself in them. And so as we look at this picture of following Jesus, it's important to note that it's not a static relationship, that following Jesus is a verb. And some of you are here this morning, and you grew up in church, and you were born in church, and you know all the songs, and you've heard all the studies, and you could probably stand up here and give it better than me, and so you're tuning out, or you're falling asleep, or whatever, and, and you're bored in your Christian life. And, and I just want to challenge that tonight by saying that maybe if you're bored in your relationship with Christ, it's because you haven't truly begun to follow Jesus. Because as I read my Bible, as I look at Men like Peter and James and John and 
And all these other guys, Bartholomew, what do we even know about that, that guy? But he's in there too, and, and Nathaniel and these other cats. As you look at all these guys that follow Jesus, you could use a lot of adjectives to describe their life. Thrilling, exciting, adventurous, crazy, miraculous, supernatural. Those kinds of words come to mind, but you can't associate the word boring with them. And so if you've plateaued, if, if you think about your own spiritual life and you don't see change, you don't see growth, you don't see the fruit of the Spirit, right? That's the way the Bible talks about change. It says the fruit of God abiding in you will, will result in fruit in your life. And that fruit is defined as love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control. And the list goes on from there. But as you think about your own life, if you don't see that stuff and you're just bored... If it's static, if it's plateaued, then maybe it's a sign that you've lost sight of what it means to follow Jesus. You've gotten away from following Jesus. Last thought, and we'll close with this one. We could go all night. But I want to leave you with this. Fourth and finally, the invitation to follow Jesus is personal. He comes to each one of these guys. He puts the ball in their court and he says, will you follow me? He says to a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, will you follow me? He says to a tax collector named Matthew, he says, will you follow me? He says to the woman at the well, will you follow me? He says to Matthew, he says to James, he says to Peter, to John, to, to all these different people, he says, will you follow me? And he says that to you and to me. And he was constantly doing this, wasn't he? He was trying to drive people out of the camp of admirer, out of the crowd, and he forced people into making a decision about him. He, he said, at the end of time, there's going to be two camps, those who follow me and those who didn't follow me. There's no third category for nice, polite, respectable people who admired me from a distance. He said, I'm either master and savior and Lord of all, or I'm not your Lord at all. You can't just admire me. You can't just click a button. You can't just... It's more than mere mental assent, believing certain things to be true. You say, yeah, I'm a believer. I believe that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, and he lives in my heart. You, you believe all of that. You know, the Bible says the demons believe that too. So congratulations, you know as much as a demon. But the Bible talks about following Jesus, following him, and that requires something more. So here's the question, and I'll leave you with this. Have you followed Jesus with your heart, with your life? Or are you just an admirer? Are you just a fan? Or are you a follower? Father, I thank you for this gathering of young people. And there is so much potential in this room. Jesus, you took 12 guys, 12 knuckleheads, 12 ragamuffins, 12... 12 projects and you handed the torch to them and you said go and carry on my mission and my message partner with me in this world to, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth and, and they did that and they, they passed the torch to the next generation and, and then that, that crew of Christians ran with the torch for their generation and for their life and then they passed the torch and, and the reality is as we stand on this side of the curtain of history, 2,000 years removed from your life, death, and resurrection, there are 
people who in our lives have passed us the baton and it's our turn to run and we want to run far and we want to run fast and we want to close the window on the number of people in this world who don't yet know you because they haven't yet heard and and Jesus we have this high calling and this huge responsibility and this wonderful opportunity God in life to partner with you to follow you in life and it's following you into something that's crazy and fun and adventurous and supernatural and filled with miracles, God, and filled with you and filled with your people and filled with the Spirit and led by your Word. And, and Father, we, we want to do that. I want to do that. And where we've allowed things to come between us and you, God, we want to lay those things down. We want this to be a radical turning point in our lives. We want to fully surrender on another level. And many of you have already done that in this camp. But if you're like me and you say tonight, I want to follow you, Jesus, in this life and through this life, just stand to your feet and, and we're going to worship the Lord. And, and maybe we could start by just singing this old song together, a song that talks about our love for following Jesus. Will you sing this with me? Sing, I have decided to follow Jesus.